Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Walter Smith Randolph. This hour, we're following the money. We're talking about the American Rescue Plan. Billions of dollars went out to communities across the country. So how is that money being spent? Joining us this segment is Susan Rath, chief political reporter at WFSB, the CBS station for the state of Connecticut. We also have Alan Barubi, interim vice president and director of Brookings Metro at the Brookings Institution. First up, Susan. How are you doing, Susan? I'm doing well. Okay, good. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, how Connecticut is doing with uh, ARPA money, as it's known. How much money did Connecticut get, uh, and how was it spent, in, and who benefited? Well, I think you were, your premise was so true. There was a lot of money that went out uh, to Connecticut and many other states. As far as ARPA money, Connecticut got almost $3 billion, $2.8 to be exact. And that money was distributed to cities and towns. And it was the second wave of money. You know, you had COVID relief money, but this, the ARPA money was really to get uh, people back to work. It went to stabilize childcare and daycare. Uh, it did go a little bit to PPE, uh, but money, especially to schools, that was a big focus. So that, you know, remote learning, a lot of kids uh, in many communities didn't have laptops or iPads. So uh, to try to get schools back reopened was a big focus. And what, what do you think the public perception of, of this money going out to community was? Well, you know, it's interesting. I had a conversation with uh, the town manager uh, in uh, one town this morning. And, you know, they still have quite a bit of money left. And at the beginning, there were a lot of restrictions on what they could use the money for. And then they still have about three million plus left uh, to spend on a variety of things. I think, you know, a lot of people felt that it was a lot of money to uh, to give to cities and towns, but it has um, gone to many investments uh, in education, in neonatal care, high speed Internet, mental health. Uh, and don't forget the unemployment fund, uh, which was critical during the pandemic uh, because uh, there were a lot of people out of work. Right. Uh, and talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, are, are people feeling that, you know, maybe the money is not being spent well? We know that we had that scandal in, in West Haven with, with the CARES Act, which is a little bit different. But how are people feeling or do people feel that their representatives are being good stewards of this money? Well, I think I'd like to believe, we all like to believe what happened, obviously, in West Haven was really disappointing. But since then, there has been a change. Uh, and in fact, the money that uh, Michael DeMassa is accused of stealing, the COVID relief money, that was intermingled with a lot of different funds that the uh, city of West Haven had. The changes now is that the ARPA money has to be in its own separate account, so that is good. I don't know why it wasn't done that way to begin with, 
uh, because it's very tempting, certainly, for cities and towns to be getting this huge windfall of money. And, uh, you know, you can use it for a variety of things. I think we heard uh, in one case in West Haven, it was used for marching bands. I think that didn't go well with a lot of people. But again, I don't think West Haven is, you know, is common. Um, you know, I think there are some who feel it was too much money. Uh, but again, a lot of it is is used for uh, getting people back to work, especially child care, schools. So, you know, it, it had good intentions. It's made some uh, good strides to getting us back to where we need to be. But yes, it is a lot of money. Yeah, it seems like the federal government is kind of learning as they go along. Same thing with CARES Act with the uh, and, and, and the money for small businesses. I'm blanking on that name right now. But, you know, I'm going to ask you this question, and I know that it it's, it's, uh, can be confusing because Connecticut has 169 different cities and towns. But do you see maybe one main thing that these municipalities are spending money on? Is it is it education? Um, I think it was at the beginning, but now schools have reopened. But so the, uh, the town manager that I spoke to uh, in Weathersfield, uh, said, you know, they're doing uh, a bunch of things with it. Um, they are what they have. Well, let, let's go back a little bit. They did school classrooms. They had to build modular classrooms because they had too many kids in, in one class. But now they have about three million. They have set up some type of an economic development uh, for businesses. But they've done a lot of recreational programs because they found that, you know, during COVID, uh, people wanted to be outside. So they're re- doing their ballparks. So it's really a whole wide range of things that towns are doing, capital projects. So, you know, they still have this money and, you know, they're trying to figure out how to spend it wisely, I guess. Yeah. And do you think this money has anything to do with the state of, I guess, Connecticut's economy, but also with this election that we just had? Well, it did. uh, It was mentioned a lot during the election. campaigns, uh, many of the Republicans running for office, especially Bob Stefanowski, who was running for governor, you know, mentioned, you know, the massive amounts of spending and why, you know, we're in this situation of inflation and the cost of living. But quite honestly, it's a global issue, right? So uh, Europe, which is experiencing even higher inflation than we have, they didn't have ARPA money. So I'm not sure that you can tie inflation in the economy to the ARPA money, but uh, make no mistake, there's a lot of cash uh, flowing around in this country because of uh, what was passed federally. And anytime you have a lot of money floating around, that's why interest rates and that's why, you know, inflation uh, does go uh, south. Okay, Susan, anything else you think people need to know from your perspective? Uh, You know, I just I think it's a double edged sword. I think that, you know, we were in a terrible situation with the pandemic, Um, you know, and I remember it. I worked, uh, you know, throughout the pandemic. Things were shut down. Schools were closed. Businesses closed. People were out of work. I mean, we still have industries that are are hurting the restaurant industry. I'm not sure that'll ever rebound. You know, everywhere we go now. Right. There there is a labor shortage. But our unemployment has come down quite substantially. Uh, you know, so I think that's that's good news. Are we headed for a recession? Some say we are. So I think it was important to invest and get cities and towns all over this country back on their feet, uh, their feet. But I guess the question is, how much money do you really spend? All right. Huh? Sorry, go ahead, Susan. Yeah, I'm not saying how much money do you, do you spend? I mean, it, you know, I think this was uncharted territory. No one really knew 
uh, you know, had been through a pandemic and how much to spend. And it's nice to have money. You know, you could argue, do we need that much? I, I, that's up to uh, cities and towns to decide. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. That's Susan Rath, chief political reporter at WFSB, the CBS station for the state of Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us, Susan. Thank you for having me. All right. Next up, we have Alan Barubi, who was interim vice president and director of Brookings Metro at the Brookings Institution. How you doing, Alan? I'm good, Walter. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Uh, just give us your quick opinion on on ARPA. Well, ARPA was a big, very big bill. It was about uh, $1.9 trillion overall in federal spending to address a range of needs that occurred through the first year of the pandemic. So it was passed into law in March of 2021. A lot of, uh, a lot of dollars in there that were direct payments to individuals and households, a lot of direct support for small businesses, a lot of money for schools that Susan was just alluding to. A lot of our work at, at Brookings, my, myself and my colleagues, has been focused on one element of, of the American Rescue Plan, which was called the State and Local Fiscal Recovery Fund. So that's the $350 billion, about one-fifth of that overall package that provided budget relief for states and cities and counties and towns and villages, uh, really uh, over 30,000 uh, jurisdictions across the country. Um, and I think that spending has, as Susan alluded to, addressed a range of sort of critical and pressing needs that were brought on by the pandemic, uh, as well as helped uh, states and, and cities and, and towns address uh, some longstanding challenges they had, longstanding challenges that were exacerbated by the pandemic. So my assessment is it's a big country. <laughs> lots, of, lots of places are doing very different things with dollars and addressing sort of different priorities. And I think that's to be expected in a big and diverse country like ours. Right. And you obviously have been tracking ARPA money um, a lot with the Brookings Institute. I understand that there is an actual tracker on the website? There is, yeah, with uh, with our partners at the National League of Cities and the National Association of Counties. We, uh, we operate a website that uh, sort of hoovers up all of the spending plans from around the country for, for larger cities and counties. There are about 300 some odd of those places that collectively received $65 billion from the American Rescue Plan. And as of the latest data, uh, have selected over 6,000 different projects across. Uh, we track 47 different priority areas. So it gives it gives folks a sort of overall sense of where the spending is going, what kinds of priorities these places are setting out with the funds, uh, as well as allows folks to dig into particular uh, jurisdictions that they might want to you know, check out and see how they relate to the overall benchmark. And I want to get into the priorities here in a minute, but uh, back to what Susan was saying, Susan Raff from WFSB was saying, what our economic situation with about inflation, with, um, you know, this projected recession that everyone keeps talking about, they've been talking about it for the past year, hasn't happened yet, though. Did, do you think ARPA help us, helped us or hurt us? Yeah, so I, I, my, my short answer is uh, ARPA helped us. My longer answer is that the, you know, the, I think the, Current economic situation, the where the kind of headline factor that a lot of folks are focused on right now is the high rate of inflation. But as Susan said, that is a worldwide phenomenon brought on largely by 
the supply chain crunch that the pandemic caused with manufacturers shutting down uh, and it's just hard to hard to get goods around the world, hard you know, factories weren't uh, operating. So you for for some time we've had too many dollars chasing too few goods and services. And you sort of layer on top of that the war in Ukraine and the impacts that had on energy and food prices. And so you've got a high rate of inflation here in the United States, but it's really not too different from that in Canada or the UK or New Zealand and lots of other advanced economies around the globe. Right. The, the best estimates I've seen is that the, the American Rescue Plan itself, yeah, it might have added maybe a half of a percentage point or one percentage point to the overall rate of inflation. But I think we have to remember we're trying to thread a needle here. We need to address really significant material hardships that displaced workers were experiencing, uh, learning loss that, that kids were experiencing, uh, small businesses who were trying to stay afloat. So we're addressing, trying to address all of those really pressing needs and at the same time, try not to overstimulate the economy. So I would just say to the extent that we maybe overstimulated it a bit, that was an acceptable price to pay for addressing those hardships. Right. And back to your tracker, I'm looking at the website right now. Uh, 327 local governments, 6,218 is the number of projects, $33.5 billion tracked, and uh, 50% of the funding has been budgeted. So th- does that mean 50% of the of of the funding has not been budgeted? Is that, is that what you're finding? Yeah. So that's so the, the latest data that we have in the tracker is as of about six months ago. Okay. So right at that time. Uh, of the total amount that uh, these jurisdictions were slated to receive, which was about $65 billion, they had selected specific projects for about half of those dollars, for $33.5 billion. So what's going on with the rest of that money? Yeah, well, uh, welcome to the state and local uh, budget process. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is how this is how things work. You don't get to like, it's not like the federal government just wrote a blank check to governors and mayors, right? The executive gets to declare priorities, but then you have to work those priorities through a legislative process. Once that's done, then the money gets programmed into agency budgets. And then the agencies, they hire personnel, they put out contracts, they do procurement, uh, and eventually the purchases get made, the spending gets done. So uh, I think this is a perfectly uh, reasonable and to be expected rate of commitments and spending going on. Gotcha. Um, and so for the money that has already been spent or been budgeted or earmarked, we know that a lot of it went, uh, you know, for PPE, a lot of it went for outreach, a lot of it for one for air filtration systems and buildings, because that's a big deal. We, we had a, uh, an investigation here into schools, uh, our, pro- our accountability project, our investigative unit did that as well. But beyond the health emergency uh, where do you where do you see that money going? Where is the money earmarked for? Yeah, so uh, of the so of the commitments that these uh, local governments at least made thus far, we saw about between forty and fifty percent were going to what we call basic government operations. So that uh, many cases included uh, hiring back personnel that they were forced to lay off during the pandemic, hiring back public sector workers. Uh, as you're saying, upgrading buildings and systems for public health reasons, air filtration, that sort of thing. Often providing back pay to uh, essential public sector workers, fire, police, emergency management, public health. Um, and then the rest of the effort, the other 50 to 60 percent, seems to be uh, kind of parceled out among a range of other priorities and in, in roughly equal measure. 
uh, economic and workforce development investments, housing, so uh, both developing new affordable housing as well as addressing issues uh, of homelessness and preventing evictions. Infrastructure was a big emphasis in the package, so support for water, sewer, broadband upgrades, um, and then public safety. Uh, the, the pandemic certainly contributed to a rise in public safety challenges and specifically in a lot of communities that had uh, long experienced problems of, of violence. So more money in many cases for police and more money for what they call community violence in, uh, interventions, sort of getting ahead of violence before it happens through direct outreach. So it sounds like a lot of this money is, is going to longstanding issues. Why do you think the pandemic unlocked this, this money? Like, why wasn't some of this money, you know, budgeted or earmarked beforehand from the federal government to help out these local communities? Yeah, that's a good question. Maybe we should go back a couple of presidents and congresses and <laughs> sort of ask them why. But I think from a you know political standpoint, it was sort of hard to, became harder to ignore uh, problems that might have been in the, the shadows of the public debate before, right? So I did, it was not only the pandemic, it was uh, the murder of George Floyd in the spring, summer of 2020 and the, and the unrest that followed. And I think it just became it became harder for the federal government to ignore the need to address a lot of the a lot of these challenges that were sort of coming to the surface in communities and the governors and mayors and town councils wanted help addressing. So I think you see a lot of uh, choices and effort with the dollars being made in getting at some of these kind of underlying challenges that the pandemic exacerbated, like replacing lead water lines, right, that, that prevented access to clean drinking water during the pandemic for some communities, addressing poor environmental quality when when you kids, you know, needed to get outside and get off of their Zoom school for a little while. A lot of kids in our in our cities and our, our rural towns don't have access to, to, to nice open space to parks and, and play equipment. So cities and towns are putting money into that. Uh, we think overall, somewhere between one quarter and one third of the dollars that, uh, that that cities and counties have committed are on programs and services that are really explicitly aimed at addressing longstanding economic disadvantage. And I think that's very consistent with what President Biden uh, and Congress set out to do with the package. Right. And you mentioned it a little bit. You talked about those lead lines, um, infrastructure. How much money of the how much money of ARPA funds is going to infrastructure to improve our bridges or our roads and tunnels and all the things that we need improved? Yeah. So out of the uh, out of the American Rescue Plan, state and local fiscal recovery fund, somewhere around we think 10 percent of the dollars are going for infrastructure investments and again the the american rescue plan said pretty explicitly yeah you have to you have to spend this on water sewer and broadband uh, uh a little later on they said oh yeah you can spend up to 10 million dollars on sort of any general infrastructure need that you might have the bigger deal for 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 states and cities and counties is the, the bipartisan infrastructure law that was adopted about six months after that in November 2021. That's got uh, over $800 billion over a five-year period that are going for the basic sort of transportation uh, infrastructure investments that, that you just alluded to, Walter. But a lot of places are using the upfront American Rescue Plan dollars to plan 
for how they want to use the bigger dollars that are coming through the new infrastructure package. So infrastructure is a very big deal right now in states and cities and counties. Uh, I'm also uh, hearing that a lot of uh, towns, municipalities are spending the money on water. Yes, yeah, so that, that's right. So uh, just a, a lot of money in, I think, uh, sort of you call it deferred investment. So uh, water filtration plants, water filtration systems, uh, flood, pre- flood prevention, uh, flood mitigation. Uh, so there's just a lot, a lot of uh, very diverse kind of water needs and water challenges happening in communities. And uh, I think smartly, some places are are trying to think about how to use the American Rescue Plan dollars to equip a, a workforce around water, knowing that there are going to be, again, more investments coming through this new infrastructure law, but a wave of sort of retirements in that sector. Uh, so trying to equip uh, a diverse set of new workers who are able to meet the the kind of water challenges of tomorrow, too, is something they're doing with the, the ARPA dollars. Deferred investment, that phrase, it sounds like to me that that means we should have fixed this a long time ago. Yeah, well, I mean, it's been a, it's been a decade of uh, kind of austerity for, yeah. especially for local governments in the United States. And so in some ways, ARPA was a chance to kind of catch up with where they, uh, where they kind of needed to be. And local, local public sector employment never recovered from the Great Recession and the financial crisis in the late 2000s and early 2010s. So uh, a lot of communities have been, frankly, sort of starved for some of these dollars for a long time. Budgets began to improve in the latter part of the decade, but you know, pretty soon after that, the, the pandemic hit. So I think, uh, I think it's only appropriate that these places sort of going back to their project list and saying, okay, what are the things that we've needed to do for a very long time now we have one-time dollars to the American Rescue Plan. Let's not waste the the chance to do it now. And any in your research, anything from Connecticut pop out to you that you you saw and said, "Oh, this is this this will benefit Connecticut residents." Yeah, I mean Connecticut. Uh, I mean at least the sort of state of Connecticut, uh, as Susan was talking about earlier, is addressing a kind of range of of issues and uh, identifying a range of priorities that are, I think, fairly consistent with what. Other states are doing, she alluded to the big replenishment of the, the unemployment insurance fund, uh, a lot of job training for, for displaced workers. I think that's a sort of a, a, uh, interesting and, and promising move that see other states, including in New England, making uh, support for mental health and substance abuse workers and providers, uh, scholarships for lower income students, legal aid for, for households facing eviction. So I think if you looked at the overall pie chart of what the state of Connecticut is doing, it would be a pretty similar uh, ARPA pie chart, if you will, to what uh, states across the country are doing overall. And it was was about $2.8 billion going to the state of Connecticut, but then another another similar amount going to major cities and, and major towns across the state too. So they have their own set of issues and and priorities that, that they're choosing to address, which I haven't dug into all that all that much uh, so far, but I'll uh, be, be curious to do so. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. Anything else before we uh, we head out? Uh, I, I'd only say that uh, you were sort of asking about, like, what do people know about this? And uh, I, I think, I, you know, these dollars are, you know, they came in big, big, big uh, 
flush moment for, for states and cities and counties. But like I said, it, it sort of gets absorbed into this process that is state and local budgeting. So it means that the, at the end, the, what the American Rescue Plan is doing isn't always super visible to your average citizen on the street. Uh, and maybe that's okay, but it'll be it'll be interesting to see for places that uh, you know that that want to show the great things that they're doing with these you know, special one-time federal dollars, sort of how they're how they're telling that story. And so I think we hope that our our data and research at Brookings are, are helping those who want to tell that story to do so. Okay, Alan Barubi from the Brookings Institution. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Walter. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Walter Smith Randolph. You can join the conversation at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. We live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Walter Smith Randolph. This hour, we're talking about the American Rescue Plan. Joining us for this segment is Bilal Taljadeen, co-founder of It's Time Waterbury. Bilal, the website for your organization calls itself a Brass Roots Community Collaborative. That is clearly a tribute to Waterbury's roots, right? Yes, absolutely. We are the Brass City. Right. And, and tell us a little bit more about what It's Time Waterbury does. Yeah, so It's Time Waterbury, as we say, is a Brass Roots Community Collaborative. And what we focus on primarily is policy and electoral politics in Waterbury, Connecticut. Of course, with the perspective that our neighboring towns affect our politics and our policies just as much as anywhere else. Gotcha. And so you you follow policy, uh, obviously. So what do you think of ARPA? Uh, overall, I think it's it's absolutely necessary dollars to come down to the local level. Uh, I think when we look a little bit more closely at how cities are rolling out their ARPA funding or their connection to their local communities, I think there's a lot of key areas that have sort of been missed. Um, and of course, there's there's plenty of time to course correct and make sure everything goes well. Uh, but I, I'd be misleading if I said I wasn't a little bit nervous. Right. And in Waterbury, where do you see some of that ARPA money uh, uh, being spent on? Yeah, you know, folks have mentioned it so far already this morning, but it seems like a lot of ARPA dollars are going toward projects that have been on the city's bucket list. So projects that we've started 10, 15 years ago that we haven't been able to secure adequate funding for are now sort of being revitalized through available dollars. 
Right. What about housing? What about housing and in Waterbury? And I know that you are big into the housing sector. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Unfortunately, Waterbury, like many cities in Connecticut, is still very much so in a housing crisis. Um, I I don't think that there are adequate resources going to housing, either in terms of how to stabilize rent, how to get people into homes. Uh, it's it's been kind of a mismatch of using state dollars and the United CT program to help people get along, but there hasn't been a lot of on the ground work. Right. And we know that there is is a housing crisis in Connecticut, as you mentioned. Can you kind of tell us what the the status of it is right now? What's the state of the housing crisis in Connecticut? I mean, awful. There's there are rents are going up and up every single month. If we look at Waterbury, for instance, I just double checked this morning. There's currently 41 apartments for rent in Waterbury. So if you were looking to move or if you're currently unhoused, you've got 41 options, the most expensive of which gets as high as $3,500 a month and requires, you know, a first and last month, a security and one month's rent, which at that price point means that if you're looking for someone to rent that unit, you're looking at around $14,000 to move in, which is entirely unsustainable. Right. And how do you think ARPA money could be used to help with Connecticut's housing crisis? I would prefer it to be seen as direct cash assistance, right? There's a lot of uh, loops and processes we've created in the past years to make sure that that on the individual person to person level funds aren't being you know quote unquote misused right where we're seeing on the state or municipal level funds are are already being misused or have the potential to be misused but when we get down to the person level we're creating all these barriers to make sure that the last thing we do is give someone who needs a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars to cover their moving costs those available funds it'd be great to see it as direct cash assistance. Yeah. And when you say direct cash assistance, do you mean money for a down payment, money for that first month and last month as you talked as you talked about? And why direct cash assistance? Why not give the money directly to the landlords? But so we saw through Unite CT that we put the responsibility on the landlords to help move those funds along. And overall, we saw landlords either not putting in claims because once they put in the claim, they were not allowed to evict their tenants. And if they wanted to use this as an opportunity to remove tenants, they wouldn't put in the application. And that meant the tenant had to leave or be forced out at the next available opportunity. And we saw as soon as those uh, evictions were allowed to start up again, immediately people were getting served papers in Waterbury. I mean, there was almost no delay. They were ready to, to move individuals out of their homes. And so direct cash assistance, when I say that, I mean directly to the resident, right? No landlord no housing complex because folks need to know or folks know how to use their money most efficiently. So maybe it's not the $1,000 security deposit. Maybe it's a rental truck. Maybe it's food for people who are helping them move from apartment to apartment, right? Because when you're in a local community, you rely on those around you more than any kind of external service. Um, Direct cash assistance is really the right way to go, I think. Yeah, you know, there seems to be a feeling that, you know, people feel like nothing is being done with the housing crisis and also kind of with ARPA money as well. Um, That's, you know, states are sitting on millions of unspent dollars. I mean, where do you fall on that range and what do you think needs to happen? In order to get those unused dollars back into the community? Yes. Ideally, there would be a really robust uh, community participation, right? So in Waterbury, to date, we have had one community conversation organized by our city 
to ask residents what they'd like to see happen with ARPA dollars. And that's on their itinerary from the release of those dollars to the actual awarding of dollars to community projects. There is only one scheduled community input meeting. And it's certainly not enough to get all the residents who many of whom have one, two, three jobs to provide input on what best to do. Right. And, and so it seems to me like you, you think the rollout process has not been effective. You know, it depends on, I guess, what you're, um, what you're looking to do, right? If our goal is to put ARPA dollars into our bucket list and our wish list, it's very effective. If our goal is to use this opportunity, as many of many people have said, a once in a generation opportunity, perhaps even once in a lifetime opportunity to actually create local and sustainable community change, right? Where our everyday life is improved in a number of ways, then we have definitely missed the mark. Right. And, and when you say, or, you know, ARPA money could be used as direct cash assistance, you know, it seems to me that a lot of what what the what Connecticut's issues with how the housing crisis is is policy, right? Um, you know, yes. mix, you know, having mixed income housing, having zoning. So, how do you think that ARPA money could be used to change the policy of housing in Connecticut? Yeah, well, it would be great to have more across the state of Connecticut, more cities adopt affordable housing uh, regulations in their zoning. Right? Currently, there's a lot of cities and a lot of towns in Waterbury, or sorry, in the state of Connecticut that don't allow for low income or fixed income or rent stabilized units to be built, right? And if they do, it might be two or three units in a massive complex, right? When you have a housing crisis where people are literally either couch surfing as their best case scenario or sleeping in cars or outdoors, a sort of not in my backyard approach to affordable housing ripple effects throughout the entire state. It affects not only not only obviously housing, but it affects education, it affects employment, it affects health. And these things will have a compound interest over the next 10, 15, 20 years. Right. Uh, and we also talked about infrastructure. Um, do you see any ARPA money being spent on infrastructure in Waterbury? Yeah, I mean, we've certainly, one of our big projects that seems to be getting a lot of um, ARPA attention revolves around our Greenway sort of along the Nogchuk River. And a lot of money uh, in the past couple of years and now is being used to sort of create a bike path along the river and redo some of the roads and create barriers so that if you are walking or biking down there, you know, you can do so safely. Uh, that seems to have gotten a lot of attention along with the regular sort of milling and paving has been attached to the ARPA dollars. Right. I understand that there might have been an analysis of transportation as well about, you know, bus stops in Waterbury and shelters and, and uh, other things like that. Yeah. I mean, what we're looking for, what would be great, um, one of the things I've often said about how ARPA is rolling out is it feels to me like a really big failure of the imagination. Like we have not allowed ourselves to think, great, we have these dollars. What's the most effective way? So if you, you know, if we took a ride through Waterbury and we followed along the bus route, I can't even I, I can't even count as high as how many bus stops have no shelters on them. As in, if you're waiting for the bus and it's raining and it's snowing or it's windy, you are just straight up exposed to the elements, right? There's one bus stop uh, on North Main Street in Waterbury that doesn't even have a place to sit. And every time I drive by it or I'm going in or out of stop and shop, I see people sitting on shopping carts, hmm. right? And that's I mean, that's truly not an acceptable way to create public infrastructure or public transportation. Uh, but we don't really seem concerned with 
public transportation or infrastructure developments that help us on the day-to-day, -day, we seem to look at all of these investment opportunities as how do we attract other people to come to Waterbury and not how do we support our own residents in a safe and successful day-to-day -day life. Yeah. You know, I hear some themes from you uh, talking about infrastructure, transportation, and housing. But, you know, if you were the king of ARPA and you had unlimited, you know, funds, what would be the top three projects in Waterbury to use ARPA funding? What would you do? Yeah, that's a great question. Also, king of ARPA is a funny a funny way. To... <laughs> I was going to say the king of Waterbury, you know, but king of you ARPA. You know, but I, I hear your point, right? And it's a good one because there is sometimes a little bit of, of mysticism and, and unclear procedures, right, when it comes to these things. I would say if we could if we could sort of take control of the ARPA dollars, the three things we would want to do the most, one, obviously looking at our public transportation system, right? A lot of folks in Waterbury do not have cars, particularly when we have in the top two or three highest mill rates in the state. A lot of folks can't afford their cars uh, or their insurance or these sort of extra fees associated. So we'd look at a more robust public transportation sector. Obviously, education is a huge component, right? Waterbury has over 30 public schools. We're a huge city. We've got anywhere from 22 to 25,000 young people enrolled across the city, plus colleges and universities. If we could create a way where public education is being seen and revamped, right? We're no longer, hopefully we can move out of a place of using really old curriculum from the 90s that are using terms or ideas that have either been debunked or updated. That would be spectacular moving into like a STEM 21st century deep dive into what the technological landscape looks like for young people entering the workforce in 15 years. I would say that would be a, an appropriate use of money. And the third thing, to be honest with you, would be community building activities, right? When we're looking at a city like Waterbury that has a, a low average median income, what we're worried about is that folks don't have enough time to enjoy time with their neighbors, right? So it, in, in our group, and It's Time Waterbury, we call this facilitating joy, right? The idea that getting together and enjoying our time with our neighbors and our friends is an appropriate and a perfect use of of public dollars, right? This is something that is important to the fabric of what attracts people to a city. It helps us retain talented young people and older adults feel like they can engage more thoroughly and holistically in their community. It'd be great to see city, not only Waterbury, but cities across the state really leaning into how do we support the quality of life that uh, centers joy and well-being. All right, Bilal. Uh, anything else before we uh, head to break? No, I would just say that it would be great if, you know, for any residents who are listening to this to get more involved on your local level around what your city is doing. Call your city hall, call your selectmen, ask them what are their plans, what are their ambitions, and then make sure to voice your own. Because as long as residents stay disengaged from the conversations in which large sums of money are being moved, our priorities might never really make it to the top of that list. All right. Bilal from It's Time Waterbury, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Walter Smith-Randolph. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Walter Smith-Randolph. This hour, we're following the money, talking about the billions of dollars that went out from the American Rescue Plan. Joining us now is Daryl Bradford, president of John Reed Middle School PTA. How you doing, Daryl? Very good, Walter. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Of course. So what's your opinion on opera? Did it help or hurt the economy? 
Well, that that is uh, the sixty-four thousand dollar question, <laughs> right? Um, and and one of the other guests uh, mentioned that it perhaps had a small uh, was a small contributing factor to inflation. And I'm not an economist, so I it, it's very hard to make that judgment. But you know, I I'm certainly as concerned as everyone these days about the the state of the economy, both locally as well as uh, nationally, and and the inflation rate. And uh, you'd, you'd have to believe, I think, that the trillions of dollars that the federal government approved under, uh, I think there was more than one tranche of uh, ARPA money that was funded, uh, has to have some kind of a uh, contributing, has made a contribution to the uh, current state of affairs. So while it's been a, a real boon to uh, local communities like my town, uh, Reading, uh, you know, the it's a double-edged sword uh, because now there's a lot of a lot of dollars out there that are. Uh, uh, I think one of the other guests said chasing, you know, too few uh, goods and driving up prices. Right, and I understand the town of Reading received two point six million dollars. Is that right? I believe that's correct. Yes. And, and so, what did that allow for you to do with your position? Well, we were one of the first uh, projects that was uh, uh, reviewed and approved by the local uh, ARPA working team. And uh, at the middle school, as well as at uh, the high school and the elementary school, there are projects that I believe have now received approval from the ARPA working team. Um, and, and for us, it allowed us really to expand and enhance uh, the use of um, our facility by building an outdoor classroom. Uh, we, we started a project uh, that we call Project COOL, and COOL is an acronym for creating an oasis for outdoor learning. Uh, we wanted to get the kids outside, uh, give them you know, an opportunity to learn uh, and, and participate in um, uh, outside in the fresh air and enjoy really what, what Reading has to offer, which is really the great outdoors. And that project is now completed. Uh, we had a ribbon cutting ceremony uh, last month in October. And uh, uh, there's a good deal of excitement around uh, what we were able to accomplish with the ARPA funding. Right. And so that project, cool, that outdoor learning. Now, was that a bucket list item that you, you know, you said, oh, one day I hope if we ever get some money, we're going to do this? Or is that something that was kind of innovative that you thought up that said, we got this money, now let's use it? Well, um, the... Uh, we first started discussing this project uh, before the pandemic uh, occurred. So it really takes us back to 2019. Parents, educators, teachers, and students alike uh, were, were asking for something like this. What the pandemic did is it really put the spotlight on the need. It, it, you know, we kind of woke up and realized uh, as we were all in distance learning that, gee, if we had a suitable space uh, outdoors, we could bring the kids in safely. Uh, they could take their masks off, at least for, you know, for the time that they're spending uh, in the outdoor classroom. So it it really elevated our project to a priority level. Um, and what, what ARPA then did is it, it actually allowed us to, um, to finish the project uh, because uh, during the uh, the year or year and a half uh, that it took to plan and engineer and get the approvals in place to build this project, uh, prices started going up. The price of material, basic materials, the price of a pavilion that we installed, uh, labor costs, everything started going up dramatically. And, uh, you know, the result was that we were looking at 
uh, a total number that was probably double our original budget. So that was a gap that we had to close. Uh, we had raised a significant amount of money through our own fundraising efforts as a PTA, um, but ARPA allowed us to close the gap and finish the project. Right. And, you know, it's great that we're talking to an educator here. And we know that we have, you know, a variety of education issues in Connecticut, like the rest of the country does. Where do you think, you know, this ARPA money could be spent on in the education sector? Where do you think it's most needed? Well, uh, I I do think that there are infrastructure projects uh, that have been postponed for a good many years. Our facilities are aging, and I'm sure that that's not only true in uh, Reading, it's probably true in uh, uh, Waterbury. Uh, your previous uh, guest, uh, Bilal Tajuddin, was talking about the situation in Waterbury. And across Connecticut, uh, we have a lot of aging facilities. Uh, so here, for example, at the high school, I believe they are uh, going to be uh, uh, replacing or renovating the HVAC uh, system. And some of these uh, infrastructure projects have been put off for a good number of years uh, because well, again, in a small community like like Reading, uh, it it would uh, represent a big, um, or it would have resulted in a big increase to our annual uh, budget. And there's not a lot of appetite uh, amongst taxpayers who who feel that uh, in this state and in this municipality that they're already paying fairly high taxes. Uh, not a lot of appetite to approve, uh, you know, more than uh, sort of cost of living increases to the annual school budget. Right. And, and, you know, as far as getting your project funded and approved and all that, uh, do you feel like ARPA funds were easily accessible? Did you feel supported in your process? Very much so, uh, Walter. Uh, the uh, In fact, it was a member of the local ARPA working committee who reached out to me um, who had heard about our project and said, gee, you know, what you're doing at the middle school seems to be a good fit with the um, intentions and, and with the goals of uh, the American Rescue Plan. Uh, so I was very grateful that they reached out to us because communication in in our town anyway uh, was, I think, sorely lacking. Uh, we lost our town newspaper until this year, uh, but for we went uh, through a dry spell of three or four years where we had no town newspaper. And so, you know, information about uh, a program like ARPA or the funds that were received was not uh, widely available, wasn't uh, really widely communicated or understood, you know, by the residents uh, of the town. So uh, thankfully, as I said, a member of our team uh, of our ARPA working group uh, did reach out to me, uh, to the PTA, uh, and uh, to inquire about what it was that we were doing and what we needed. Yeah, and what would be your advice to other folks who are trying to get their projects funded? Because you, you you got the PTA, you got the Board of Education, you got your school administration, you got your parents, you there's there you got the ARPA Council you're talking about. There's so many different entities that have to interact and talk amongst each other. And when we talk about local government, we talk about red tape and bureaucracy. How how are you able to manage that? And what's the advice to other entities to be able to manage all of that? Well, I guess patience and persistence are sort of the key words that uh, uh, jump to mind. But I think if the project itself has merit, uh, at least what I found in our community, that it, it was not particularly difficult to uh, to get all of these uh, different stakeholders aligned 
uh, around the project. We had, uh, I felt very supported by our board of selectmen, by the board of finance, by the ARPA working group, by the uh, school superintendent, uh, as well as the school staff, the administration, you know, there was a good deal of enthusiasm for what we were doing. So I think if the project is right, uh, that with a little bit of patience and persistence, uh, it's not too difficult or it shouldn't be too difficult uh, to cut through that red tape. And how is the project going? You talk about outdoor learning. I mean, it is uh, November 14th and for the first time they had to wear a heavy jacket. <laughs> you know, I feel like winter's a little late here in Connecticut, but how, how is the outdoor learning going for, for your town? It's, it's going very, very well. Uh, as I said, we finished the project uh, on or about the uh, first day of school, around September 1st, the project was substantially completed. And so by late September, uh, teachers and students were starting to use the facility. And with uh, the beautiful fall weather that we've had in Connecticut uh, this year, uh, I think the facility has gotten uh, a, a considerable amount of use. Okay. Anything else before we, uh, before we head, head out? No, I don't think that there's uh, much more that we can add. Uh, I, I would just say that, uh, you know, for, for, for listeners and, and residents in other towns who may be wondering what's going on with ARPA, what's, where's the money going, it, it does take uh, time. I know that in our community, there are about 20 projects pending uh, at the moment, and, and the applications are in various stages of review. And there is a due diligence process that towns uh, should go through right, um, to ensure that the projects uh, have merit and that the funding will be adequate, that the, that the projects can actually be uh, completed. And, uh, and that's part of the reason, I think, why it does take a little bit longer to get the money, you know, from, uh, from Washington to the communities uh, and ultimately to, to spending and, and making the investments that are uh, so needed. So it's a slow process, but you think overall it's worth it? I think so. Yeah. And, and you said that there's 20 projects that are, are pending. Can you give us a sneak peek of what people are pitching? Well, I, I don't have the details in front of me, but I know that uh, there are projects uh, for social services. There are a couple of public safety uh, projects um, for our local police. There are projects at each of the schools. Um, and, uh, and there are projects uh, that are focused on expanding the town's recreational facilities. Okay. And we know municipalities have until 2024 to spend this money. Uh, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Walter Smith-Randolph. Today's show is produced by Anya Grondalski. Where We Live is produced by Tess Terrible, Katie Pellico, and Katie Talarski. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Our interns are Jacob Gannon and Taylor Doyle. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.